You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here this morning and excited uh, to walk through the scriptures. Can we thank these guys just one time for leading us in um, worship as our hearts get ready to hear his word? If you have your Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39 is what we're going to read. And then we're going to walk through verses 26 through 29. Um, Just uh, uh, three verses, 26, 27, 28, 29, four verses, um, I guess. And that's what we're going to look at today. But the whole passage is 26 through 39 in Luke chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there and uh, be ready for that. Um, We're continuing our journey through the gospel of Luke, which is the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, right? That's what the gospel of Luke shows us, what it teaches us. Remember Luke's purpose in this, okay? Um, And we can look at it. We studied it in the first chapter while we were um, beginning this book. We saw Luke's purpose for writing this book, and it's good for us to be reminded of it. So you can see it on the screens, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. This is Luke speaking. There's been a compilation of narrative about Jesus and what has been accomplished among us. There's a lot of eyewitnesses. And just as they were delivered through various ministers, it seemed good to Luke as well to compile an account. Having followed these things closely for some time past, he was a doctor, he was a physician, which is why the This book is so detail-oriented. The Holy Spirit drives the writer, while at the same time, the writer has his own personality and own writing style. And so uh, Luke has written this account. All the details sometimes makes me wish that we would have picked like the book of Mark, right? Because we got so much detail in here. Um, Just kidding. And... um, And so we're going to stay here in Luke, but for some time past to write this, here's what Luke is doing, writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Um, And so he's writing this orderly account, right, to either Theophilus, a person, or Theophilus, uh, a a general group of, of people that this is the story, this is the account, this is the orderly account of the narrative, of the life, of the death, of the birth, of the life, of the death, of the resurrection the ascension of Jesus Christ. And here's the purpose that we may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so what Luke's purpose is, is that you would have certainty, that you would believe the things about Jesus and who he is and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, that you would believe these things, that you would have certainty that these things are true. And so if that's Luke's purpose in writing, then that's also the way in which we read it. Okay, so the way in which we read it 
coincides with the authorial intent of it, which is for us to understand. So although this has great application for our lives, the, the first and foremost priority is that we would be people who read this in such a way that it convinces us of the truth of who Jesus is and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, that we would be informed and, be, um, and we would be certain of these things that are true about Jesus Christ. And so we are simply put learning about Jesus. We are believing the true things. He is giving us an account so that we might be fully convinced that this is true about Jesus, the Son of God. And so this is, again, a detailed account. One of the things that is being made clear of in this gospel is that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. This is the main thing. Okay, so what are we to believe about Jesus? That he was a good person, that he walked a lot, that he you know, slept once or twice that we see, that he prayed a lot. I mean, what is it? Yes, all those things are great to notice, but the main thing that Luke is convincing us of is that he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's fully God, begotten as fully man to accomplish salvation for his people and to redeem the world. Luke is confirming to us that this is true. And if it's true, we must believe him as he is and be forgiven of our sins. And not only this, but if Jesus is truly the son of God, then we must follow his word closely. Not only this word, but the entire scriptures because they are the, indeed the word of God. So just like this gospel, So also the rest of scripture is pointing us to the same truth, that God's redemptive story, God's great storyline that he invites us into, right? So we're not inviting him into our agenda in life. He's inviting us into his great eternal story. And as we see this story and he's inviting us in, Christ is the pinnacle at every point. Him being the son of God, right? This, this Jesus Christ who we are seeing. And as we follow his word, then it makes us holy, conforming us to his image, making us like him, right? So this is the point. And so as we see this, just like uh, the scriptures and, and just like this gospel in particular and the rest of scriptures, one of the ways that Luke intends to show us that Jesus is indeed the son of God, which is again, the main point is by showing us Jesus's divine power. One of the ways in which Luke aims to convince us that Jesus is the son of God is by showing us Jesus's divine power. It's divine that it is not like any man's power, showing us that Jesus plain and simple is God. That's what he's showing us, right? If Jesus is the one who's, listen, going to accomplish this redemptive work for you, for me, by saving us of our sins, forgiving us of all of our trespasses, defeating sin, Satan, the devil, hell itself on our behalf because of his power and his work on the cross, then he must possess the power to defeat sin and Satan and demons and hell itself. He has to possess the power to do so in order for redemption to take place. And if it doesn't take place, then we are lost in our sins. And the only one who can save us is Jesus himself. Therefore, Jesus is intentionally displaying his great power over sin, over Satan, over hell, over demons, over the uh, underworld, the, the spiritual forces in the evil realm by, in order to tell us that he can redeem us from sin and Satan and hell and uh, the consequences of it. So Luke is showing us his deity revealed through his divine power. Now, 
This is important, and this is extremely relevant to your life because if Jesus doesn't have the power to defeat sin or Satan or hell, then you're lost in your trespasses, and you are destined to an eternity apart from God. And yet if he can, if he does, then he's got the power to redeem your soul for all of eternity and transform your life here on earth. This proves that Jesus is the son of God. And I'm not making it up. This is what Jesus said. Like Luke 11:20, 20, he says, my power displayed through defeating Satan and his schemes shows that I'm the son of God and that the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Look at this. And if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. I always love that because you see in the Old Testament, the examples when God talks about his might, he talks about his hand, he talks about his strong arm, right? And here in the New Testament, as Jesus speaks of him defeating the devil, he he says, if I, by the finger of God, like all it's going to take is a finger, right, can defeat the demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. It proves that I'm the son of God, right? Exactly what we're seeing. First John 3, 8, Jesus told us this is the exact reason in which he came to earth. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We can't get any more plain and simple than that. That's the reason why he appeared. We also see he appeared to save sinners and forgive, but they're all in, in line with one goal. And so we see Jesus's divine power and we've seen it. We saw it last week. We saw it. We're going to see it again this week. His divine power over the winds, over the wave, over the curse of the earth that we see back in Genesis chapter three. And now today over demons themselves and on into the end of this chapter, we're going to see the same example. He's showing us his divine power and today over a man who is possessed by demons right? That's what we're seeing. And Jesus not only intends to defeat the demons, but he intends to redeem the whole man. Not only defeat the demons, but to redeem an entire man and his whole life. So Jesus, listen, does not only intend to defeat the power of sin and Satan and hell in your life, but he intends to redeem you fully, to buy you back and then to set you on mission, to, to abide by his word and to live for him. And this is what we're going to see of this man. There's going to be two parts this week and next week. And in this, what we see is the defeating of the demon's presence in this man's life and then setting him a course to live on mission for Jesus. And so we're going to see this story today. Jesus has the divine, divine power to redeem even from the grips of Satan's forces. Let's pray and then let's read. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all that you're going to show us today. God, we need to see your divine power because we need to understand that you are the only one who can save and redeem. And yet we have great boast and confidence in who you are because you are the one who possesses the power. No scheme of Satan or the sin that is ever before us can separate us from your great love and your great power. And God, we thank you that you have defeated Satan and that the ultimate defeat is on its way. 
And we look to you as the Son of God, the one who can redeem our souls for all of eternity. But not only that, but call us even out of present darkness as there may be lingering sin in our lives. You have the power to change and to transform even that. And so God, I just pray that you would show us this great display of your power today, that we would believe that you are the Son of God and look to you for the defeating of the power of the enemy in our individual lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter eight, verses 26 through 39. Get your reading glasses on because we got quite a bit of text. Don't worry, we're not walking through all of it. By the way, the eye doctor told me that I need to uh, get those one times reading glasses at this point. I'm 34, so I'm in trouble. Here we go, dollar store, I'm on, my, on, on the way there. Dollar Tree, 20, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time, it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bond with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by, uh, driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man, demon man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned, and the man from whom the demons had gone out begged uh, that, he might not be with, uh, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return, go to your home, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. What an incredible picture, what an incredible passage, an incredible story of Jesus as the Son of God being exactly who he needs to be, the one who has the power to redeem, specifically over Satan and his schemes and his forces and even hell itself. And as we follow this theme of Luke, let me show you that this theme is going to exist now and even into the end of the chapter. So we're going to do a little Bible drill before we actually start walking through this passage. You guys ready? All right, convincing. Here we go. 
Verse 22 starts this new theme, okay? We just finished, just look, stay in this chapter. Follow with your finger along and we're gonna make it through to the end in just a couple of minutes. As you look in, cha- in verse 22, we see this, this new theme starting, one day signifying this new theme that we just move away from the parable of the soils into this new theme, verses 22 through 56, which is the end of the chapter, contain this new theme. That new theme helps us understand why this passage today is before us, okay? So if you're wondering, like, how do we know that this is the intention of this particular passage we're reading today? Jesus and his divine power, his power over Satan, his schemes, the devil. It's because the theme is throughout the rest of the chapter intentionally for you to see so we can understand what this theme is here today. How do we see this? Well, let me just show you a few things. Ready? Again, follow with your finger along. There's four aspects of this that I want you to see. Four stories. First, we see the power over nature the earth, the curse, which happened in Genesis 3, over the physical realm. Ready? Jesus' power over the curse, over the physical realm, over nature, over earth. And then we see God's, uh, the people's response in the presence of God as he, do, as he does this, okay? So God's power over nature, right? And, and the curse and the physical realm and then the people's response as Jesus does this. How do we see this? Where do we see this? Verse 24, this is the first story, ready? We read it last week. When they awoke, they woke him up. Master, master, we're perishing. And he woke up, here's the power over the earth, over the physical realm, ready? Over the curse of the, the land, ready? He says, Winds, waves, stop. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they did what? They ceased. They stopped. There's his power at his command. Now let's read the reaction of the humans. Ready? He said to them, where is your faith? And what were they? They were what? They were afraid. Sinful man, the presence of holy God, too intimidating. Because they understand who they are in light of who he is. Secondly, Now the power over the spiritual realm, over demons, right? Second story, verse 29. And then again, the people, the presence of sinful man in the presence of holy God, right? Verse 29, ready? Authority and power over the demons. We're gonna talk about this today. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to do what? Come out of him. It does exactly what Jesus says. And then we see the reaction, verse 35, ready? Then the people were out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from the, whom the demon had gotten sitting at Jesus' feet clothed in his right mind and they were what? Afraid. We see the power of the only one who has this power, God himself, and then the reaction of sinful man in his presence. Third, third story, ready? Not only over the curse, not only over the demons in the spiritual realm, but also over the rippling effects of sin, which is disease, right? We see this rippling effect of sin, and one of those rippling effects is disease, and he's got power even over the effects of sin, right? Not only the curse, not only the demons and in the spiritual realm, but also the effects of sin. He can overturn Satan and overturn his demons and overturn the curse and overturn even the effects of sin. He's got the power to do so. And then we see the people in the presence of God. Look at verse 43. This is the third story. And there was a woman who had discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. No man, right? She came up 
behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. That's why everyone's touched you, right? But Jesus said, no, 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 wait. Someone touched me for I perceive that what? Power has gone out. The power to reverse the effects of sin. And then the reaction of the people, verse 47. Ready? This is still the third story. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came doing what? Trembling, fear. And then the fourth story. Not only does he have power to reverse the curse, not only does he have power over the spiritual realm and the demons, not only does he have power over the effects of sin, but he has power over the ultimate enemy, which is death itself. Ready? Verse 49 and 50. Same chapter. Ready? While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered. And what did he say? Jesus, on hearing this, says, do not fear, only believe. She will be well. Okay, yeah, like, yeah, right, Jesus. That's let's, let's good to say, right? Verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And she returned. She was at once alive. Right? And what's the reaction? Verse 56, her parents were, what does that say? Amazed, which literally is out of their minds in the presence of holy God. This is the theme for the whole chapter. Not only is this the son of God, but he is unlike anyone else. There is no human being who can do this. This power is from God himself, and he's got the authority to reverse all of the effects of evil and to redeem us as his people. This is the purpose. This is the result. And in the presence of holy God, sinful man says, too intimidating, please leave, right? Because in light of God, we see ourselves. And when we see ourselves, we say, I don't measure up. Have you ever been in front of somebody who's just so much better at something that you really want to be good at than you are? And instantly you feel inferior, right? Well, imagine being in the presence of holy God who is perfect in every way. What do you instantly feel? Sinful, the truth. In presence of holy God, we are with sin. And so we find this story right here, smack dab in the middle of chapter eight to show us this truth. It's also shown in Matthew chapter eight and Mark chapter five. It's gonna help us as well. We only have one point today, the first and only point. It's the first step in the story. And then we're gonna see the rest of the story next week. And this story, this point right now, verses 26 through 29, we see the deliverance of this man. We see the exorcism of this demoniac. The power of God shown through taking out a spiritual demon multiple from this man, right? And then eventually making him whole. This is the only thing that we see today. This is the point of when we get to verse 29, this is what has happened up until this point. Demon, now no demon. Jesus, power. And then we're gonna see the result, okay? Exorcism sometimes is a word that's used for funny things. It's not. This is the reality, to take away a demon from a man. And this is happening here, okay? So verses 26 through 29, let's read them again. Those are the verses that we're gonna be covering. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, 
For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so what we see at this point is this exorcism of this demoniac. Now, we can't even begin to understand this story unless we realize that whatever we know about demons, that they are intensely real. They are intensely real. The Bible makes that clear. From the fall of Satan to the army of his fallen angels to the powers of hell and demons themselves, these are forces that are trying to prevent you from believing in and following Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 12 tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can't see it, but that's what's happening. And we must believe it because the Bible tells us that it's true. So we only know about this realm from what is found in one book. And that's called the what? Bible. And so we don't know everything. God has limited our knowing, right? Which in some ways we would not even be able to comprehend because as far as the heavens are above the earth, his knowledge is above ours, right? And outside of the gospels, actually, while on earth, while Jesus is on earth in the gospels, we don't see really many instances of demons, right? In the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but we see plenty in the supernatural realm. God's angels, Satan and his evil powers, God's cosmic rule, even him speaking the world into existence is a supernatural reality, right? And their only goal, the demons, the evil ones, only goal is to wage war on God. That's the only goal. God's creation, and especially, most specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's their enemy. They, they hate God. They are insane, right? Listen, uh, Satan is, is the definition of insanity. He is a maniac. He's the smartest besides God, and yet he is evil through and through. There is no logical understanding to what, why he does what he does, except to steal, kill, destroy out of a hatred of God. Listen, you have no idea. Satan is a lunatic. And he wants to destroy your life. He's a lunatic. And he wants to separate you from God for all of eternity. And he wants to kill God and he knows he can't, but he's still at his game. He wants to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most importantly, the way in which he deceives you is by telling you that sin is good and that it will satisfy you and sin will destroy you. And this is his goal. He's a lunatic. 
They are intensely real and they have been intensely real and they are especially intensely real to the Gerasenes and to these men here. They were exceptionally real to the man who was deranged by them in this passage. The man here was a picture of violent insanity. He was too dark and too evil and too dangerous to live into a, in, in this community. He lived amid the tombs, among death. In light of all this, we can also note Jesus' way of dealing with this man, even though this man had maniacal and supernatural strength, which enabled him to snap bonds. We're gonna see that this wasn't only one demon, although in some instances he uses a singular verbiage in this passage. It was not just singular, it was not just one. It was a representative speaking on behalf of the many. There were 2,000 to 6,000 and demons that possessed this man. And we're going to see it as we look later on in the uh, passage, later on in the weeks. This 2,000 to 6,000 spiritual beings had overcome this man. You say, how in the world did they fit, right? Well, they're not material, they're immaterial. They're spiritual. Jesus intends here to show his divine power by the easy victory over these demons. You see, people were so terrified of this man that they would likely do nothing to go near him, and yet Jesus faces him calm and unafraid. Just like the storm, and just like he will of disease, and just like he will of death, because he's got the power to reverse all of it. Now, how do we get here? Well, we got here because Jesus was open-air preaching in the towns, right? You remember this? They shut him out of the synagogues. And so now he's preaching in the towns, going from town to town, village to village. The start of chapter eight, you can look there later. He ends up in a house, the crowds are outside, and then he ends up coming outside. The crowd pushes up against him. At all times, tens of thousands, 10, 20, 30,000 people at Jesus's, in Jesus' face at all times, without fail, never a time of stopping until Jesus pulls away. So therefore, he goes onto a boat onto the lake and begins teaching them about the parable of the soils. You guys remember this? And as he's in the boat, then later on, the disciples inevitably want to know what the real definition of this parable, the explanation of it is. So he spends some time with just the disciples. And then evening comes and Jesus says, let's sail. Let's get away from this crowd. I need to also rest. I have a divine appointment with the storm that you don't know about, right? I'm going to deepen your faith. And now it's probably daybreak. And he's also making a divine appointment that he had already set up with this sir demon, right? This was his goal. They didn't know it. As I told you, Jesus is doing 10,000 things in your life. And at any point you might be aware of one or two. They, all they knew was Jesus was getting into a boat, and Jesus had all of these things in place. He had a, an appointment to keep, an appointment with a demon. Well, as he gets into the boat and he gets away from the crowd because he had been teaching all day, he falls asleep. And now here they are as where they were headed was to the country of the Gerasenes. Now this is about six miles across from where Jesus was 
to where Jesus is now. Matthew says the gatherings, and you um, might be confused about some of those. We see that um, there's a town of Gerasa, or there's known as a town of Gergasa. That's the same place, about 40 miles southeast of this lake, right? And hence, you get the idea of the Gerasenes or the Gargarasenes, right? And so Mark and Luke, this is modern-day Cursa, right? And this is what's happening. But in addition to this, we also see that in Matthew's account, he calls it Gadara or the um, Gadarenes, which is six miles away from the edge of the water. All of this this different um, language of the Gerasenes, the Gargarasenes, the Gadarenes, it's all just giving us a broad area. We know where this broad general area is with a bunch of different people groups that are all uh, together and yet um, separated um, in some ways. But Luke is showing us simply a Gentile population, a broader area from where he was in Galilee uh, directly across now in this place of the Gerasenes. It's a Gentile population bordering the lake. It's opposite of Galilee. Galilee is on the western shore. This is on the east. Eastern Shore. And so he's here now. In Jesus, verse 26, what we see is as he steps out on land, right? As he steps out on land, we see it says that they sailed to this country first in verse 26 before he steps out on the land. Now, I want you to see this. They sailed. Look back at verse 23. What does it say? And as they what? Sailed. Now that's intentional because they're picking up where they left off. Yeah, there was a monumental storm that threatened all of their lives. But guess what? They're unharmed, they're untouched, their boat works and their sail works. And now they're here once again. Jesus has saved them, spared them, and they're back to where they were. Although danger They are unharmed because of the protection of Jesus. And now they are sailing after the storm. Now they are sailing once again and they sail to the country of the Gerasenes as we talked about, which is opposite of Galilee. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped out on land. And so listen, I bet the disciples, first of all, were glad that they were on land, right? And now at this point, what we see is that there's no time in between them docking and Jesus meeting this man. Right? We know it because Luke says, when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man who was demon possessed. Right? So in Matthew's account, if you're wondering, there's two men. Why is there two men? Well, the fate of, the, uh, of both are the same. Here, we're just focusing on one of those two men. Okay? And so that's the answer there. They're on the shore, not anywhere else is, except where Jesus had stepped out onto land. There, when he was being maybe docking his boat and being greeted by various people, a demon comes. And this demon comes from the city. Now, we talked about the country of the Gerasenes, and now we're talking about a city. Again, it's just a broad, general, spatial region that gives us the understanding of who would be living there. And this man, what did he have? He had demons. Now, I always think that's interesting when it says that, because he didn't have demons as much as the demons had him right? He was had by the demons. Notice the plural, demons. So what is demon possession and what should we make of it? Well, we don't have time. Um, We could spend a lot of time on it, but 
a way for you to study this would be using something called systematic theology, okay? Um, a study, systematic theology is a study of theological issues systematically, or you could also say topically, okay? So what systematically does, systematic theology does is it takes um, the content of the Bible about any given subject and puts it together under a systematic topic. God, Satan, angels, demons, man, Christ, etc. Plug for my class, okay? Or also plug for just buy a book and I'll tell you who you should be reading and maybe who you should not be reading about this, right? But why theology is so important that we would believe the right things and take the wealth of information that the Bible has on any given particular major topic and it's condensed into something underneath that topic, not condensed like taking anything away from it, just put together in such a way that we would understand what the Bible says about any particular topic. But for the purpose of today, I wanna just read one of uh, an excerpt from someone who does this for, uh, for a living and does it really well, Pastor, a pastor named John MacArthur on this topic of demon possession. Here's what he says, and just, as, just a brief preview. It says, it is actually a supernatural phenomena in which a living spiritual being, a fallen angel kicked out of heaven because of his rebellion with Satan, who now works for Satan to stop the purposes of God and to captivate men's souls and hold them as much as they can against the influences of the gospel. These beings literally take over a person's mind and body. They are personal, rational spirits. They talk, they scream, they create all kinds of thoughts and patterns and behavior patterns that are described in the gospel records. It is not a physical disease. Although some physical ailments and physical torments are associated with it, it is not that these people were the worst of sinners either. Therefore, the demons do not possess them because they are the worst of sinners. They possess them because they choose to do so because sometimes we see children even in scripture. And children are obviously not the worst of sinners. It is a kind of torment that comes upon people and the question immediately comes up, well, how do people put themselves in a position to get this? And the answer to that question is, I am not sure. I do know this, that anybody without God, anybody without Jesus Christ is a child of the devil, as the Bible says, is a member of the kingdom of darkness. Anybody without Christ then is under the rule of Satan and under the influences of his demons. And therefore, anybody who is a sinner who is not protected by the salvation through Jesus Christ is therefore vulnerable. What the entry points are, I am not sure. I can't be explicit about every case. I can say this, that if you study the scriptures, idolatry seems to be a way to throw open the door. Tampering in an occult seems to be a way to throw open the door. And this is what we see from demon possession. I don't know that there's any way to say all that is to be said about it, except that God allows Satan to do his work and demons have their agenda. And within God's allowance, they pick and choose who they will. And it isn't though these people want this and they are not happy about it. The human becomes passive as we read in the scriptures, the mind, the body, and the voice are taken control of and evil in this person who was not the worst of sinners is immediately accelerated. This is the picture of this today. This is not something to gloss over. And this power that Jesus possesses does not look real to us 
unless we understand how real it truly is. This great power that the demons possess, 2,000 to 6,000 of them, only exemplifies the great power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing to him. Nothing. Less than nothing, as the Psalms say. And so this man was possessed. And it says he was possessed for a long time. It said for a long time, there's some things, we see some characteristics about him. So this is for a long time. The description doesn't say his whole life. And so we probably get the idea that at some point this started and previously before this, there wasn't, this wasn't true. But now it is true of this man. And so it indicates that it started at some particular point or, or moment, right? And we see this tormented, tortured man who is afflicted with an unclean spirit. It's not something that he desires. What are the characteristics? Well, first we see that he had no clothes. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. Now you ask, what is the deal with all this, like he's him wearing no clothes? You know, like that's weird. Well, it's more than weird. It's actually perversion. This is not something to play around with. This is real. And the reason why he's naked is because it's an act of perversion. You see in Acts 16, even evil spirits tear the clothes off the people. Ever since sin came into the world in Genesis chapter three, shame has been related to nakedness. And so this is to torture a man with shame in addition to that, just the physical realm of it, just it being cold and hot in this place and the cold at night and then the sun beating down on a man who lives outside and is constantly naked at all times. The spirits are dominating, perverting, torturing this man with evil. Now, this is what's really happening here. It's telling you what's going on. And so this man was crazy. Matthew 8, in the same account, tells us, just a little bit about this man again, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, again, there's that different name, two demon-possessed men, see there's two there, met him coming out of the tombs. And listen, this is the truth about this man. So he's naked and he's so fierce that no one could pass by this way. This is the evil. This is the picture of scripture. This demon-possessed man, he's a killer. He's destroying his own body. He's suicidal. He's wanting to destroy even himself. He's a maniac. And he didn't live in a house. That's the next characteristic. Like a house could even keep this man. Could you picture him like tidying up a house? Nothing can control him or protect him. And he lived among the tombs near the dead. Pure evil. Pure darkness. Overtaking this man. Mark 5 tells us even more into this. He lived among the tombs. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, broke the shackles into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out or also be interpreted as shrieking and cutting himself with stones. Shrieking, irrational, chaotic. We're seeing in a minute that maybe he had lapses of strength or something because they tried to bind him, supernatural strength and aggression. Verse 28. And when he saw Jesus. Game time. This is Jesus, the son of God. Ain't nothing more powerful than this man. 
He's the son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who was there in the beginning and the one who holds all things together and everyone is subject to him and his great power and he is now here in human form and the demon sees him. Maybe the demon's up in the mountains and he sees him coming to shore and he meets him on the beach and he recognizes him. And listen, he had never seen him before, but this is not a recognizing because of who Jesus is. Jesus is not glowing. He's a man, literally. The demon doesn't know him because of some physical attribute and it's not the man who knows him. This is the demon. The demon knows him because the demon doesn't age. The demon was created and yet he doesn't um, die off. And therefore, he's known Jesus for a long time, thousands of years. And he knows that he's God. And he knows that he's the most powerful one. Just like the raging waves and the raging wind who knows the voice of the Son of Man, so too this demon knows this is indeed the Son of God in human flesh. He cried out, it says, verse 28, in a shriek, 2,000 to 6,000, but it says he, again, because of some kind of just representative on behalf of all of them, and he falls down before him. This is the one. Make no mistake, this man has absolute hatred of Jesus. This is not a position of submission and love for Jesus. There's no ounce of unawareness of who he is. He is this demon's eternal destiny is in Jesus's hands and he knows he's going to be defeated, squashed like an ant or less than that. Jesus's power is infinite and yet the man who no one could apprehend, no one could make subdue, no one could hold still because of his knowledge of who Jesus is and his great identity and power on his own in the presence of God Almighty falls down before him out of fear and says in a loud voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, the son of the most high God, what do you want to do with me? Why are you here? Now, he's inevitably asking this question because Jesus, the time has not yet come that Jesus would ultimately defeat Satan and sin and all the evil, right? They still have some time to wreak some havoc still, right? Because when Jesus comes back, what is he gonna do? He's gonna defeat it all once and for all, right? And so he's got some freedom right now to play around. And he's wondering, why, is, why are you here? Why are you here now? Like, I, I got some time still to make chaos of people in this world and to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this man, this demon knows it, right? Which is crazy because unlike the disciples in verse 25 who look at Jesus's act with the winds and the waves and say, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey his command? This demon is not questioning who Jesus is like the disciples. He knows. He's got greater theology than any of you, any person in the world. He's Orthodox through and through. He knows the truth about Jesus. James 2.19 tells us, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They know the truth about Jesus Christ. And so the time had not yet come, but he says, I beg you, do not torment me. In Mark, he says, swear to God that you won't torment me. I, I, want, I don't want to go anywhere either because I want to keep wrecking this world. He's insane, insanity, Satan, demons. He wants to kill, destroy. He's smarter than you. And this is as 
goal. He's tormenting this man. No human created being could ever bond or apprehend this man, and yet he is laying down in fear, begging the Son of God not to torment him, which is ironic because that's all this demon had been doing is tormenting others, right? He knows who holds the true power, and that's what the main point is of this passage. Jesus is indeed the son of the most high God, and he has the ability to reverse the power of Satan and all of the evil forces in the spiritual realm. He says, son of the most high God, El Elyon, God, the most high. This is a name in the Old Testament that is now being used in the New Testament. God, the sovereign one, God, the sovereign Lord, right? He knows that this is the sovereign Lord, the creator, the one who's the most high, the one who's been there in the beginning. This is him in human form, right? This is exactly what the angel told Mary he would be called. Look, Luke 1, 31 through 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called what? The son of the? The exact name in which the demon is calling him here. This is his identity. This is his power. He is exactly who he needs to be to overturn sin and overturn the curse and overturn the effects of sin and Satan and all the spiritual forces and death and even hell itself. And we read in verse 29, it says, he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Just as the winds and the waves obey him. So to the demon. And I love Luke. You would expect Luke to like exclamation point this thing, underline it. Like, listen, he commanded the demons to come out of this man, right? And Luke's way of showing us the major aspects in a story is by making it extremely simple. It almost exemplifies the point by just stating it simply. And we see him say here, he commanded the demon to come out of the man. Commanded. Just as the winds and the waves this demon, this Satan, they don't do anything in the favor for, to promote God. And yet they have no choice but to obey, to obey. He commanded it, but I want you to see this also. Look at this. You ready? It says the, almost the grounds for which he commanded the unclean spirit to come out. For many a time it had seized him and he was kept under the guard and bond with chains and shackles. That just means there was a guard near the tombs probably watching, don't get too close to the people. And bonds and shackles means hands and feet, right? And he broke them, continued to break them. He could not be subdued. He was driven out into the mountains, into the desert very often. But Jesus had commanded this demon to come out of him on the grounds of that this man continued to, or this demon continued to seize this man. It's like Jesus is showing us also it was for the sake of the man, not just for the sake of the display of his power, although they coincide. It's to save the man. It's to redeem the man. It's because the man is under the heavy burden of bondage, of sin and of Satan and of evil and the devil's schemes. It's for the man to redeem him. Luke 4 tells us, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus quoting from Isaiah. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set 
at liberty all those who are oppressed. Many times it had seized him and Jesus was freeing this man. And we're gonna close here. We'll pick up next week. And we see that even the demons are subject to Jesus' authority and Jesus' power. And I wanna tell you, listen church, before you turn your ears off, as we subject ourselves to Jesus and his great authority and his great power, he has the power to overturn sin, overturn the curse, overturn the effects of sin, and overturn death itself for us. Because he's the son of God. He's got the power to save and to change you. Now I hope you understand that you need that because of your sin. And we see this demon recognize who Jesus is and plea for mercy. And although with the wrong intent, it is a pattern that we should notice. That we would recognize who Jesus is and plea for mercy for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the pattern. Recognize and plea. Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. And you have the power to forgive me of my sins and change me. And I plead for mercy that you would forgive me for all of eternity. That's the pattern that's here. That's how we defeat Satan and his schemes and to be redeemed. To be redeemed means to buy something back. That's what it means to redeem something. Imagine the, the, the analogy breaks down, but imagine you losing something or someone stealing something and then bringing it to a pawn shop and you walking into that pawn shop one day and seeing that item and then purchasing back what was once yours. You've redeemed it. And the Bible tells us that in the beginning, in the beginning of creation, we were gods. We were made to be his possession. And because of sin, the Bible tells us we have become enemies of God. There is no neutral. If we are not in God's family, the Bible describes the category as an enemy. John 8, says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now that might sound harsh, but even a drop of sin distorts the holiness of God. And God maintains his holiness. It doesn't affect him, but it's not what we were created to be. And yet the gospel, Jesus comes and he pays the price to buy you back into God's family. What's the price? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So that's the price. Galatians 3.13 from that says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 1.7 says in him we have redemption, redeeming through his blood. That's the price. And what's the result? The forgiveness of our trespasses. And then what he does is he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you as a deposit guaranteeing that you are now his possession once again and that you will be ultimately his possession one day in heaven. Colossians 1.22, he has put a seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that we are his possession. Now Jesus paid the price, everything necessary for your redemption. He was born as a human like you, which was necessary for pay, to pay for the sin of humans. 
His life was perfect, which was necessary on your behalf. His death was the payment for your sin, and his resurrection was the power to overcome death as you spend eternity with him. And we are united to this truth by faith. He is the power to overturn the curse, overturn Satan, overturn the effects of sin, and overturn death in your life through his redeeming power. But I want to tell you also, for the Christian in the room, redemption doesn't stop at the purchasing of your soul. If you were to purchase something like the pawn shop illustration, the ultimate act would be to purchase you back, but the ongoing act would be to be making you new. As you buy this item back from the pawn store, you're cleaning it, you're restoring it, you're giving it a new home, you're keeping it safe, and most of all, you're delighting in it as you maybe put it on your wall once again. As every time you walk by it saying, I'm so glad that that's mine again. And that's what God is doing as he redeems you. You see there's creation, there's salvation, then there's sanctification until glorification. And sanctification is the process of making you new. Creation, salvation, sanctification, glorification. God is in the process of transforming your life into the image of Christ that you would be pleasing to him. And so let me just ask you, in what areas are you still living as a slave, as one who has not been redeemed? Although you have been bought back, you are still running back to the slavery in which you were purchased from. He has made you new by giving you a new name, a new life, a new family in his kingdom, and yet you continue to run back to the pawn shop, so to speak. Slavery. Even though he's got the power to overturn all of the sin and the effects and the Satan and the hell itself in your life, you run back to it. What, is, what, what are the areas? What is the evil as we've just talked about? We've made evil so plain and clear today. Bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition, addiction, maybe spending, self-glorification through social media, Pornography, pride, fear, fits of rage, anxiety, all other kinds of evil. Where is the Lord needing to show you his power and you needing to submit to it? Let me just close with this. I know this is a lot. Let me just close with this. Here's the pattern. It's okay that it's a lot. I just want to tell you that I want you to hear what I'm about to say. This is what the pattern is that we see. Now, this is of the demoniac, and so it's not pure in its intention, but this is the pattern. It's a closing goal for you if you want to see the power of Jesus redeem your life. Recognizing who he is in all of its reality. Crying out for mercy. Recognize, cry. Three, we're going to see that after this is done, all he desires is nearness to Christ. He asks him not to leave. Recognize who he is. Cry out for mercy. Desire nearness to Christ. And then yet Jesus tells him, hey, listen, this is what I want you to do instead. And the man follows his commands. Follow his commands. That's the pattern that we see that took this man from a demoniac to an evangelist. This is the, this is the pattern that will cause growth and redemption in your life. Recognize who he is, cry out for mercy, desire nearness to Christ, and follow his commands. That's where the power will come from.
And I pray that God would have this great power in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we just ask that your word would have its great effect on our lives. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for using your word to guide us and to shape us and to mold us. I pray that we would respond and see your power by recognizing, by crying out, by desiring nearness to you, and by obeying your commands. And I pray that we would see your great power of redemption as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.